Hi, everyone. I'm Jack Cush with stillsnow.com, and this is the Stills Now podcast. I'm joined today by Dr. Susan Shinoy from Seattle Children's. Hi, Susan. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for inviting me, Dr. Cush. Well, it's great to have such a good friend and expert to talk about auto-inflammatory and stills disease matters. Susan is the Associate Director of the Pediatric Rheumatology Program, Associate Director, Associate Professor, and Clinical Director of the Pediatric Rheumatology Program at the University of Washington. So today, what we're going to do on the podcast is we're going to review a little bit of the news um, that's germane to this website and topic, and then we're going to have a, a deep dive discussion into genetic testing for patients with possible auto-inflammatory disease. It's something we all face. What do you do when you don't have a diagnosis and how you go about it? We just wrote a, a, a little bit of an overview on that that you would have seen on Stills Now or on Room Now. But Susan, a few articles that came across my desk in the last few weeks that I thought were interesting. Now, you happen to be a pediatric rheumatologist, very interested in systemic JIA, right? Very much so. It's been my first love. Right. And me, adults, and adults, Dills is why I went into rheumatology. Interestingly, though, we have a tremendous amount in common, do we not? We do. Systemic JI equals adult Stills disease. I don't know why we make that differentiation. They're it's the a, same disease. It took the FDA almost, you know, 15 years to figure out that that, that was really the truth. So it is unfair that I'm going to give you a report out of Western Australia that looked at the incidence, a population-based study at the incidence of adult Stills disease. And they found that uh, the incidence was 0 0.22 per 100,000 or a prevalence of 2.4 cases per 100,000, um, meaning it's a rare disease. So for people who live in a city of 1 million people, they expect to see 24 cases of adult Stills disease. Um, and Susan, knowing what you know, that adult stills disease is the long tail, smaller continuum of the pediatric disease. Um, how rare is this in, in your practice and in the city of Seattle? Is this still a pretty uncommon condition or is it much more common in pediatric rheumatology? So it's a little bit more common in the pediatric age group, and I've always wondered why. Our incidence rates in pediatrics range from about one and a half to 23 per 100,000 cases, whereas in the adults, it's, it's consistent studies, including this Australian study, have really shown it's less than one in 100,000. Yeah. Um, I think what's also interesting to me is the key difference in sort of seasonality um, of when we see pediatric still, uh, stills disease or systemic JIA, whatever you want to call it, we tend to see it during spring for some reason. And there's a cluster of cases every spring. I don't see that that's really been consistently reported in the adult literature, but it's for us as pediatric rheumatologists, it's more common than you think it would be. Um, and, there, and there are other pediatric rheumatologic conditions where you do have a seasonality, right? Yes. I mean, is it like yes. HSP and Kawasaki's and, um, you know. Kawasaki's, exactly, yes. And so I'm going to go somewhere I didn't expect to go here in that adults have this unusual manifestation of 70% having a prodromal sore throat. And what does that mean? And it's not seen in kids. And it's often postulated, well, it is, it's either an infection or it's lymphoid enlargement due to lymphoid activation, you know, and whatnot. 
but you don't see it in kids. And is that because kids have more infections? And now let's go to the issue of stills being caused or exacerbated by COVID or COVID vaccines. I think that there still is a, a major play in here for infections as the instigator to this, what we call systemic JIA. So the short answer to that is yes, but I'll break it down. I think the sore throat is really interesting because there are, there's a, sore throat is one of the criteria, as you know, for adults, it's not one of the criteria for classification of pediatric, but I see it very often in the older teens that have systemic JIA. So it makes me wonder, well, are two-year-olds two year just not complaining of sore throat because they can't? They're just crying instead. Um, so is it there, but we just don't pick it up because of the age group? Two, is it really an infection that's driving it, some sort of a prodromal pharyngeal infection that's then driving it? We know for a fact that infections precipitate flares in systemic JIA or Stills disease. And then um, three, some people have actually thought that maybe sore throat is a manifestation more of cricoarytenoid joint arthritis um, rather than an infection. So I think there's lots of possible theories. Um, I think sore throat probably is under-recognized. It's, it's the older teens that verbalize it in, in our population. Adults know they have a sore throat. They can say they have a sore throat. The two-year-old can't really say that. Right. Um, and then going to your second point, which is um, COVID, I don't know. I think time will tell. We're sort of in the third year of this pandemic. We saw at our institution, we saw interesting patterns during COVID, right in 2020, sort of pre-COVID, early COVID. There was a, no pun intended, but rash of systemics, suddenly these weird systemics. And then as everybody sort of went into their own corner in their house, didn't move around, 2021, we had nothing. Nada, zip, zero. And I know this because we actively enroll for systemic studies and we enrolled a whole bunch in early 2020 and then there was nothing all of 2021. And now that people have started going out again, mingling again, there's more systemics. We have one admitted in the hospital right now, a little kid. That's fascinating. That's yeah. really fascinating and does speak to this seasonality like you're talking about and exposures, wow, is all I can say. The other interesting thing about this particular report is that they did look at um, survival in stills patients versus the general population, and one in five-year survival rates were not different. And I've always advocated that stills disease doesn't kill you. Um, steroids will kill you. If you use steroids badly, you're going to get bad things happening. Uh, and there's always the gigantic asterisk there of MAS, but Excluding, if you excluded MAS from your pediatric population, do you think that, that systemic JIA kids have higher mortality rates? No, I don't think so. And I think that that's been shown in prior studies. I think the thing that kills systemic JIA patients is MAS, unrecognized MAS. Right. And infections, too much steroids, which was sort of the old era, fortunately, um, you know, we now have a whole host of biologic agents. And so a lot of our patients, some people are not even using steroids in systemic JIA at all and going straight to IL-1, IL-6 inhibitors, which is amazing. Um, but no, I don't think systemic JIA per se causes mortality other than the fact the asterisks, like you mentioned, MAS. 
So the number and, I and the study, I'll make one more comment. I think it's really nice. It's data over 14 years. It's a really great epidemiologic study through Western Australia. They clearly show that over that time frame, the mortality hasn't increased. What I'd like to see is the next version of that study, version two, from 2014 to 2020, 2021, because I think biologic use has kind of escalated over the years. And in their cohort, about 27% of people were exposed to biologic agents for um, Stills disease. So I feel like that's definitely got to jump up over the next decade. And I'll be interested to see what the mortality shows um, then, what their trend is. So um, the number, I'm not familiar with the number, the, the actual risk of MAS in kids. I saw a number this week from Petros Athemiu wrote a, a, an overview article um, uh, said 23% of adults are at risk or, or manifest some version of MAS, um, higher or lower in kids? Um, it, there's been variable reports. It depends on sort of what you use your cutoff as to define MAS. Right. Um, it's ranged from 10 to as high as 33, 35%. Um, I think we don't recognize early MAS as well as we should as rheumatologists. And, right. you know, I've been burned by MAS. It's such a bad disease. You really want to have your antenna up and catch it before it sort of goes into full-blown MAS. So I often will say, well, the patient is headed towards MAS or, you know, Randy Crone wrote a great article where he did bone marrows. This was many years ago, bone marrows on a bunch of systemic patients and showed hemophagocytosis, even though they didn't have clinical features of full-blown MAS. So if you wait till they're hypotensive, in respiratory failure, that's the, the right, horse right. has left the barn. Like you need to catch them much, much earlier. So I think the subclinical MAS or the early MAS as high as 30, 35% of systemic patients will have that. And we got to identify them because a really high mortality rate is high as 38% when you have MAS. My, my antennas go up when I see patients who have all the leukocytosis, thrombocytosis, high cellular numbers that all of a sudden take a reversal and start to drop. Yep. And when the CRP really skyrockets and the set rate goes down, those are my two early indications. Do you have what anything that guides you better as far as making you worry about early disease? The platelet count. The platelet count will often start to take a trend down when they're high, high in their early systemic phase and revved up with inflammation and all these cytokines, their platelet count is usually high. You want it to be high. But a systemic GIA patient who has tons of joint, tons of fever, rashes, and their platelet count is 300, so normal, that's not normal for that degree of inflammation. So to me, the first question I'll always ask is, What's their platelet count? What's their SED rate, like you said, and what's their CRP? Their platelet count is low normal or low. That's a red flag to me. If their SED rate is dropping and their CRP is going sort of high, like you mentioned, so there's that disconnect, that's also a huge red flag to me. Okay. So this particular report appeared in the International Journal of, of Rheumatologic Diseases. Um, if you'd like to see that, we'll have that in the show notes. The, the one other article I wanted to bring, uh, get your comment on was uh, from the journal Pediatric Rheumatology, 
and it was about tapering of biologics in Stills disease. It was supposed to be a meta-analysis. Of course, they only had about four papers to deal with. Uh, and the issue here with systemic JIA is that you start them on effective biologics, usually an IL-1 or an IL-6 inhibitor, and they go into remission. And the question is, we don't know when still stops. And if they're in remission, is it drug-induced remission or actual disease remission where you can stop the drug? So I tell my patients, when they ask, how long am I going to have this, doc? I say eight months to eight years. And, you know, you show me a year of remission numbers, then we'll start to take your therapy away. And I, we do it slowly in a tapering fashion. Um, so I'd like to know how you counsel your patients on this. In this particular report, they did show that those on anakinra, by in general, the first step was to go to QOD, every other day dosing, and then sometimes every three-day dosing. And the general rule has been that once you go off of anakinra, because of short half-life, patients will flare within three days if they still have active disease. And then the, if it's not anakinra, it's tocilizumab or canakinumab, they either lower the dose or they space out the intervals. So first, what's your approach to telling patients um, how long do I have disease and how do you go about testing yeah. whether they should go off drugs? So first and foremost, let me say, how amazing is it that we can talk about tapering medications in this disease, right? Like this, that's amazing. In the old ages, these patients used to be on steroids for ever and ever. Um, so we've reached an era where we are using early biologic therapy, early targeted therapy, and we, we're actually talking, and there's some data like this article shows on tapering. It's, it's fantastic to be living in this generation. So the, the, the article actually talks about four studies, all of them were in systemic JIA, so all in the pediatric age group, um, two of which talk about anakinra withdrawal. Um, most of the data is from Europe, so the Utrecht group, where they gave early anakinra, they waited for about three-ish months. If they had features of being in remission, so quiet disease activity, they started to go to every other day of anakinra and then did that for a month and then stopped. Um, and their cohort actually, and then they published another sort of next version of that same cohort. And they showed that the majority of patients were able to get off their anakinra somewhere between 70 to 90%. That's mind blowing. Some of them flared later on. So I think you're right to the point, like, is this medicated remission or is this really your disease and biologically you're in remission internally? We don't know. We don't have great ways of testing for that. Um, you know, eventually some of their cohort patients flared. And I think, you know, long-term, their last data said about 50% were able to get off the anakinra, which is really amazing. Yeah. To me, systemic JI is a bit of a different beast compared to the other juvenile arthritis. So I think you can actually start to taper their medications much sooner than traditional RA or you know, poly, poly GIA kids. And I would say, based on some of this data, the anakinra data, and there's another um, really nice study by Cartier and all on canakinumab where they actually randomized patients that were on canakinumab, had systemic GIA to either tapering by dose reduction. So they went from four mg per kg to two mg per kg to one and then off or tapering by increasing the interval. So you go from four weeks to six weeks to eight weeks and they had decent results. Eventually about a third of their cohort actually was able to get off canakinumab, which is fascinating. So to me, 
I treat systemic patients a little bit differently than I do my traditional poly JIA cohorts, where I do ask for one to two years of disease remission before I'll take away their um, you know, TNF inhibitors or other medications. But with systemics, I do it a lot sooner. I would say three to six months of quiet disease. If not flare, let's start to try and see what you're doing on lower doses of medications and let's try and get you off. Um, I'd love for a time where we have great ways of figuring out which of those eventual patients will flare versus which will stay right. in remission off medications. Yeah. But I think we're a while away from that. The elusive biomarker uh, yes. that we need, uh, or genetic test that we need. All right, so I wanna get into um, the main reason why I wanted you to um, talk to us today, because I've heard you talk about genetic testing um, in, in patients. and. Uh, and the question is, when should we use these panels, these auto-inflammatory panels and whatnot? For um, the audience, we did have a little review of this, both on the Stills Now website and on the Room Now site it's called Genetic Testing for Auto-Inflammatory Disease. It explains, you know, how this came about, the old days of looking for the single gene defect in, you know, Mediterranean fever um, or in hyper-IgD syndrome was how you did this but it was always hard to get that single gene defect test done. It was expensive, it took forever. And, and anyway, that old single, you know, Sanger sequencing has been replaced by um, these next generation sequencing panels where they do lots of genes together. And that's these auto-inflammatory panels that are out there right now. Um, and I really, as a result of, of, of you and, and Anne and others, um, I started doing these in patients who were atypical, um, who were not responding to therapy, um, who uh, didn't quite really meet criteria for Stills disease by my Cush criteria or Yamaguchi criteria. Uh, I think there are other situations where you might want to do them. So we review that. Uh, and I basically said that the, uh, the way you would, or why you would do this is because someone has continued undiagnosed, um, unexplained fevers. They don't necessarily have to be 105 fevers, but they are daily or they are continued recurrent fevers that are still unexplained. Non-response to therapy, not meeting criteria, and then having other features of auto-inflammatory disease, which I list a bunch of them. And tell me which ones I'm missing. Musculoskeletal complaints, joints and muscles, oral ulcers, abdominal pain, rashes, urticaria, um, uh, painful rashes, um, uh, eye inflammation, conjunctivitis, lymphadenopathy, serositis, headache, and CNS manifestations. I might throw in there psoriasis. What else? Yeah, yeah. You've got them all. You've got it all. Right. Well, I, I'm learning from the experts like you. So that's the reason why I might do it. But do you, so how do you, um, first off, in your patients who you diagnose with systemic JIA, will you do one of these auto-inflammatory panels? Not usually if they're pretty classic um, systemic JIA. I do them sort of exactly where you mentioned. They're atypical. They don't really meet classification criteria. They have difficult to control disease that isn't being controlled by what we would consider standard first or second line of therapy. Um, they have unusual complications. Um, those are sort of the population where I would do a genetic testing. The other interesting piece of systemic or Stills disease is, you know, they are predisposed to MAS. 
like we said, about 10 to 30, 35% of them can get MAS. Um, and it's been shown in previous studies that actually about a third of systemic patients can be heterozygous for um, the genetic MAS genes. So somebody who has recurrent MAS or difficult to treat MAS or is really young, like a baby with systemic GI and recurrent MAS, you think, okay, could this be familial HLH? Is there really a genetic hit here? So that's another kind of systemic selective scenario where I might consider genetic testing more for the MAS genes, so familial HLH rather than the other auto-inflammatory genes. And I have to say your article is really well written. It's succinct, it's to the point, it really covers everything. So I highly recommend folks read that article on your website. Um, but there is also data, like you mentioned in the article, about uh, people that meet systemic or stills criteria. And then for some reason, they had genetic testing done, and about a third of them can have genetic mutations in MEFV genes, familial Mediterranean fever genes. So I think, you know, it's just humbling. For me, as a rheumatologist, we go often by phenotype. We don't think about genotypes of these patients, and we should. We should for atypical presentations, for weird presentations, for things that don't respond well. So we should think a little bit more broadly about these patients. So in your kids who present uh, as many auto-inflammatory diseases do as infants and children with, with what you suspect as being a monogenic auto-inflammatory condition, um, do, you, are, do you make those diagnoses always on clinical grounds or do you always do genetic testing as con uh, for confirmation? You know, when next-gen sequencing became available in 2007, it was ridiculously expensive. But now we're in 2022 and it's dirt cheap. I mean, some of these companies do next-gen sequencing wherein you're able to sequence for a whole panel of genes for several auto-inflammatory diseases for less than $500. I mean, think about that. Think about the um, cost of 500, something less than 500 bucks versus the cost of going over and over and over into your physician to get a diagnosis and to get on the right treatment. I think that, um, as it's become more available, as it's gotten cheaper, um, as science has advanced, I tend to do it more often than not because it makes a huge difference. Even if you find 20 to 30% of your patients with a known genetic diagnosis, it makes a huge difference in what medications you're gonna choose for them. It makes a huge difference in terms of what I call heritability or genetic counseling. Some of these are autosomal dominant diseases. You gotta let them and their next generations know about this. And a lot of auto-inflammatory diseases really have a risk of secondary amyloidosis. So you really wanna start screening for that. We don't think about that often um, with our kind of garden variety room patients. So it makes a huge difference, even if it's that select zebra that you're trying to pick out. Um, to me, I can tell you that over the years, I've tended to sway more towards testing and knowing rather than not knowing. Yeah. So in the article, there is a, a breakdown of these auto-inflammatory panels and the companies that order offer them. They range in price from $250 to um, $1,500. And like in Vitae, the one that I use mostly for 250, you can get like almost 80 genes that are associated with auto-inflammatory conditions. 
if uh, if the patient's going to pay, not their insurance, but the patient self-pay, you can sometimes negotiate a price that's even lower. So um, getting involved with these, and you can find the citation that comes from the Systemic Autoinflammatory Disease Support website that we uh, uh, lifted this information. But what do you think is the downside of of getting these panels? I, I I'll, I'll first I'll point out that what I heard from um, people at the NIH is that at the auto-inflammatory clinic where they're the experts and all the troublesome patients are going there and they have access to all the genetic testing in the world, including these panels, um, more than 60% of their patients do not have a genetically defined diagnosis. So that's a bit sobering, but what, what is the downside to getting these panels? I think in my view, there's no downside. The downside is you raise your hopes thinking, okay, maybe I'm going to find something. I'll get a gene hit and I'll find something and I'll finally know what to, how to treat this patient, what to do, which medication option to pick. Um, but like you said, more often than not, they come back negative or there's like variants of unknown significance that come back. And then you're scratching your head and thinking, what do I do with this now? Uh, it's not a classic gene hit. It's not a known genetic mutation. Right. There's something wrong. So there's a VUS that's been reported and it sort of still leaves you in this gray zone, I think. So that's probably the most frustrating part about getting these panels. Um, over the years, they say that about 90% of the USs will be downgraded to a benign mutation and about 10% of are upgraded to a pathogenic mutation. So there's no way really in my mind that I or a single physician can keep track of these or for your patient panel that you follow. So I really end up printing out these tests, giving them to the family and saying, look, here, we didn't find a known genetic mutation, but you had this VUS, you need to keep tabs on this because you don't know where this VUS is gonna go 10, 20 years from now. As more and more discovery takes place, you just don't know. Um, but, the upside of a genetic panel is you do get a diagnosis and then you say, oh, okay, now I know. And now we have X, Y, and Z as good options for you. Yeah, I think that um, a variant of unknown significance is still important because uh, if you follow what goes on at the NIH and other places around the world, these ultimately, many of these, not all of them, I think you're right, that like that number 10% are going to be clinically important diseases and others we downgraded, but time will um, get, lend some comfort to, to the result and some insight, the results. So I think- I will, Can I add one more thing, uh, Jack? And so sometimes there may be a genetic disease and you won't get an answer on uh, next gen sequencing panel. So the new disease that was discovered Two, two, two and a half years ago, Vexus in adults that um, is an auto-inflammatory disease, but it's really a somatic mutation. Next-gen sequencing panels won't pick that up. So, you know, sometimes if you really are suspicious for an auto-inflammatory disease, there could be somatic mutations. So I would say that's probably another downside is you then have this false positive sense. Oh, okay, I've done my job. I've ruled it out. But maybe they actually need a whole exome or a whole genome sequencing, you know. It's rare, um, but it does exist. Right, so the article we wrote uh, does talk about a whole exome sequencing and 
whole genome sequencing, which are generally not used because one, you get a whole lot more information and a lot more VUSs that you really don't know what to do with. They're not as easily uh, attained or accessible. Um, and um, again, they might be better applied when previous, like a panel proves nothing and you wanna go a step further or when there's a clear cut um, inherited pattern of disease that uh, you want greater insight into. So, all right, uh, Susan, I wanna thank you so much for this discussion today. You really made the, this episode of the podcast a great one. Uh, folks tune in every month for the podcast. Have a good day. Thank you for having me. Bye, Jack. Bye, Susan.